Well, hello. This is Sean Dietrich. You are listening to Sean of the South. This episode brought to you by Case Knives, a tradition of my family and my folklore brewing in Meadry, the best beer in Alabama. We've been taking our show around the U.S. and the Southeast, recording our shows before live audiences. The show you're about to hear was recorded in North Carolina last year during the Christmas season with special guest tonight, Becky Bowler, playing her fiddle like a woman with her hair on fire. And later in the show, I recite a story about buying a Christmas tree with my wife. And later still, I tell a story about something that happened one Christmas in 1989 in eastern North Carolina. Let's have a listen. Listening to Sean of the South. We are coming to you live from North Carolina. This episode brought to you by Case Knives, a tradition in my family, and my folklore brewing in Meadry, the best beer coming to you out of Dothan, Alabama, with special guest tonight, Becky Buller, everybody, playing her fiddle. Somebody, I'm your guy Just hurry and come over Mama made apple turnovers Together on the Saturday night to be here in the old north state of North Carolina. It is a beautiful state to celebrate the Christmas season. I really mean that. Last night on our way here we were coming we passed through Asheville and it was just the prettiest town you ever did see. It was all decorated with holly and ivy and twinkly lights. We passed through several other little small towns that just looked like they'd come straight out of a Norman Rockwell painting. What a glorious place. I want to talk to all the radio listeners out there and all of the podcast airwave listeners out there. I hope you're having a merry Christmas season right now. I really do. I hope that you're getting all your shopping done and spending a lot of money on pieces of holiday effluvia that nobody in their sane mind needs. I hope you're buying useless items like little porcelain salt shakers that are designed like two little fat Mr. and Mrs. Santa Claus. <laughs> or that, that, t- that t-shirt you bought for your 99-year-old grandmother which says, Dear Santa, I've been naughty this year. Are you single? I do love it here. It's hard to believe that this entire state in ancient times, especially the eastern half, was underwater. And giant megalodon sharks roamed these waters. And on the land that was exposed, woolly mammoths and mastodons grazed on the vegetation. It's believed that the first Native Americans settled in this part of the world around 10 to 12,000 years ago. And eventually this state became so diverse calling itself home to 30 native groups which settled across the state, including the Cherokee, the Woodland, the Mississippian tribes, and the hard-shell snake-handling Southern Baptists. 
Europeans first came to North Carolina in the 1500s. And it became the 12th colony in 1789, just after America declared its independence from the empire of Great Britain. North Carolina got its nickname, its unique nickname, because workers here in this state used to sell tar, pitch, and turpentine from the native crop of longleaf pine trees that cover this state. They used this tar and pitch in wooden ships and there was a vast excess of it all over. And legend has it that some British soldiers were slowed down as they were making an advance through a big field because the field had been painted by a North Carolinian militia with buckets of tar and pitch and the nickname that stuck all the way since the Revolutionary War was the Tar Heels and was inherited by the University of North Carolina everybody a lot of first things happened here in North Carolina a lot of first things starting with pirates the most famous pirate in the world Blackbeard called North Carolina home and he spent time ransacking ships off the coast in the early 1700s and making this his summer place. In 1799, the first gold was discovered in the United States in the mountains of Cabarrus County, a 17-pound nugget that probably was barely enough to purchase your internet service. <laughs> Fast forward to about a century later after that, and we see Wilver and Orville Wright completing the first successful airplane ride in the dunes of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina in 1903. And this is why the state's license plates and quarters read with the state's official motto, we're sorry your flight is delayed. <laughs> A lot of famous folks born here in North Carolina, including jazz pianist Thelonious Monk. President James K. Polk and possibly President Andrew Jackson, who was maybe born on the border of North and South Carolina, although no one has really researched this because nobody cares, frankly, because Andrew Jackson was history's greatest idiot. <laughs> and a young man would grow up here born in 1951 in the little town of Canopolis, North Carolina, who would go on to be known by his competitors as the Intimidator, Brother Dale Earnhardt. And it was on March 29, 1982, as a young UNC freshman who grew up in Wilmington, North Carolina, born in Brooklyn, New York, but his family moved to Wilmington, gave the Tar Heels a 63-62 win over Georgetown in the NCAA championship game, and the world would never be the same. His name was Michael Jordan. Beautiful place south of Virginia, east of Tennessee, north of South Carolina, west of the Atlantic Ocean. Traveling across North Carolina, visitors often remark that they have seen the best that the United States has to offer, represented in three unique regions. The Appalachian Mountains, the largest mountain range in the eastern United States, which is pronounced up here, Appalachian. <laughs> And the Piedmont region, high and flat like a mountain with its top chopped off, where rivers flow through waterfalls over grand rapids. And the eastern region, which is the coastal plain, mostly flat land, which leads to the Atlantic Ocean, represented by beaches, swamps, and acres of longleaf pines. North Carolina truly does have everything, folks. It has everything a guy could want. And tonight, it has something else. If you would, please welcome to the stage, Becky Bullock. Thank you, Bullock. In hand in hand with Pa, five years old and terrified. Mr. Jean smiled at me, helped me up into the chair. 
up my gaze Said that's a tale I'd like to tell Of a young man who came in one day With a fiddle and a dream to sell He tried to live out on the His hope was gone, his pockets bare They warned him it would end this way He returned to start anew No money for shave and trim He asked, would this fiddle do? said you're done I begged him to tell me more what happened to the wayward son turns out it was Mr. Gene hung his fiddle up that day now I'm living out his Shut up! 
This world is lost in darkness And evil has its way Oh, Lucifer keeps walking to and fro When we take the high road Christmas time is here and the world looks bright and clear. There's pinery everywhere and snowflakes in the air. The smell of smoke and leather and apples fills the atmosphere and I find myself wishing you were here. My wife and I bought a live Christmas tree today. After nearly two decades of being married, my wife and I have never bought a live tree together. We selected a balsam fir. We were gonna get a Fraser fir or a Douglas fir or one of them other fancy firs, but we really didn't want to have to reverse mortgage our house. <laughs> the first thing I realized when buying a live Christmas tree is that Christmas trees have gone considerably up in price since my childhood. For a balsam fir that is roughly the same tiny size as a mature traffic cone, you're looking at a price tag of approximately $100. The Christmas tree salesman said, think of it sort of like the entry level Christmas tree, kind of like the Toyota Corolla of the Christmas tree world. Although looking at our tree after we got it, I was thinking it was more like the Chevette of the Christmas tree world. So after we paid for our tree, we strapped it to the top of our van, and we took the interstate home, traveling upwards of 70 mi 75 miles per hour. And by the time we pulled into our driveway, most of the pine needles on our tree had blown away, so that our tree resembled a piece of driftwood we had attached to the roof. <laughs> Once the tree was inside the house, we prepared to have a night of Christmas reverie and joy. I fetched the box of declarations while my wife queued up the Christmas music on our streaming service. And by streaming service, I of course mean that my wife struggled with an endless technological nightmare of Wi-Fi settings, forgotten passwords, faulty modem connections, and a customer phone service hell with representatives headquartered in Bangladesh and Indonesia. 
Finally, my wife hung up the phone and said, screw it. And she turned on the radio. As the music played, the memories got so thick you had to swap them away like nights. So when I was a kid, we had the best Christmas trees. And I don't know what happened over the years, but somewhere along the way, my family quit using live trees. Which is probably why the only Christmas tree paraphernalia I could find in our attic was a box of outmoded antiques that had once belonged to my grandparents. I found an old Christmas tree skirt that was made of white felt that predated the Roosevelt administration. And I also found my family's heirloom red and green Christmas tree stand. Ah yes, the red and green Christmas tree stand. At one time, every house in the lower 48 used to have one of these metal red and green jack post tree stands. It is an invention that is about as worthless as a white crown. <laughs> these stands have never worked, not since the history of man. They were always causing your tree to topple and crash. It is a proven statistic that the leading cause of U.S. divorces between 1929 and 1998 were red and green Christmas tree stands. <laughs> Even so, putting up the tree during my childhood was always a big event, and it usually went the same way. I can remember my old man coming home from a long day at work. We'd hear his Ford roar up the driveway. He'd enter through the back door, covered in soot and sweat, carrying a fir tree that was about the size of the Jefferson Memorial. <laughs> Get out of my way, he'd say. This thing's heavy. This thing's heavy. And he would triumphantly plop the tree into the living room like a dead muskox. And it was time to make merry. Mama would put on Andy Williams on the hi-fi, or Nat King Cole singing in German. And my old man would officially start Christmas by cracking open a can of high-octane beer. <laughs> my mother would hold the tree steady while my father crouched beneath the boughs, manhandling that flimsy red and white jack post tree stand. He would tighten the eye bolts, brace the wobbly legs, and whittle the base of the tree with his pocket knife just so that it would fit. And this entire process took about as long as veterinary school. <laughs> hold still, he'd shout. I am holding it still, my mother would say. No, hold it really still, I mean. What do you think I'm doing, you big idiot? You're moving the dang thing around, that's what I think. And then my father would cuss liberally. This would be followed by the sound of my father screaming in blood-curdling pain, and he would say, ouch, you kicked me. But my mother would have already vanished from the room as the tree made its slow descent to our floor. <laughs> and after several hours and one case of Pap's Blue Ribbon, my father would finally get the unstable red and green Jack Post tree stand to function. But of course, the tree was always crooked. The balsam would be leaning slightly to the northeast and pointing at about three o'clock. <laughs> but it was a fine tree, a beautiful tree. Next, my mother and sister and I would decorate the boughs by painstakingly covering it in strands of white popcorn, colored lights, paper ornaments, garland, and about three metric tons of tinsel. <laughs> Before bed, my sister and I would admire the twinkling bulbs in the darkness, talking about the mysteries of Saint Nick, the virgin birth, and singing the alternate lyrics to We Three Kings, which involve a rubber cigar. <laughs> At some point during the midnight hours, when the whole world was fast asleep, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even my hamster George, the tree would ceremoniously fall over with a loud crash. <laughs> and somewhere in the darkness, you could hear the faint sound of my old man cussing. <laughs> so anyway, these were the thoughts that I thought about earlier today 
while I crawled under our live balsam fur and got tree sap all over my face and my hands. I was thinking about Christmas time being a time of family, being a time of beauty and a time of kindness. I was thinking about Christmas time being my favorite time of year. But most of all, I was thinking about the man who used to dog cuss late into the night hours when the red and green jack post stand did not function the way he needed it to. Which is why I put a picture on the mantle beside the tree this year. A picture of my father. Now, if you would, welcome to the stage, Becky Bowler, everybody. Becky Bowler. Thank you. 
Well, this portion of our show is brought to you by Case Knives, a tradition in my family dating back to my granddaddy who once said the best cure for idle hands was to build something. So keep your hands sharp with a case knife because according to my grandmother, there is no sin more grievous than having idle hands. She would take any child with idle hands and send him or her out to the yard to gather firewood or do some sort of busy work. And she herself never had idle hands, especially when a child misbehaved when her idle hands connected with your idle butt. (laughs) This portion of our show also brought to you by Tennessee Peanuts. Tennessee Peanuts. Are you feeling tired, anxious, or unhappy? You have frequent bouts of forlorn complacency and existential angst that leaves you exhausted, drained, grumpy, depleted, and downright despondent. Well, try Tennessee Peanut Company's down-home peanuts. Ten out of twelve doctors recommend Tennessee Peanuts to aid digestion, increase circulation, and improve well-being overall. Tennessee Peanut Company brings you an array of roasted peanut flavors to suit all your body's essential peanut needs as identified by the American Medical Association. So you can burn your tongue on some Nashville's sweet and spicy peanuts or satisfy your sinful needs with doubly dipped chocolate peanuts. Enjoy flavors like Cajun Bayou Bites, Honey Roasted Chipotle, Traditional Salty, Sea Salt, or Cracked Pepper. And when you have room in your belly, Try some sweet, sweet classic peanut brittle. You can trust me on this. Your pancreas will thank you. (laughs) The Tennessee Peanut Company, for all your peanut needs, open 24 hours of the morning, day or night, in time of day. Visit the Tennessee Peanut Company at TennesseePeanut.com. And now, if you would, everybody, welcome to the stage, Becky Bowler, everybody. Becky Bowler.
heart of the house She was the heart of the house And it's empty You could walk up to any child, any child in the world or in the U.S., pull them aside and ask them a very simple question. What's your favorite holiday? And frankly, you know exactly what you're going to hear. The child will not look at you and say, my favorite holiday is George Washington's birthday. <laughs> the kid will say Christmas. It is a universal truth among all children. We know this internally because we were former children. In fact, when I look out here tonight, I look at all these people and you know what I see? I see very, very tall fourth graders. <laughs> because you never quit being a child just because your bones get longer. Just because you've been to the doctor and had a few back surgeries underneath your belt, just because you've had lots of dental work done, just because you have been put on this strange new antibiotic cream by your doctor because you have a fungal infection in your right big toe that makes your foot look like it's fallen into a wood chipper, <laughs> doesn't mean that you're actually an adult. You are still a child inside, and your favorite holiday probably is Christmas too, because we never ever grow up entirely. And this is why I love this holiday because it's a great equalizer among all ages. We are part of the fraternity of mankind. This world begins to change color on us. The summer sky is replaced with the autumn sky which is the color of aluminum. And the trees have changed colors from verdant green to flaming reds to browns having naked branches and the leafless boughs reach upward into the sky trying to grasp heaven it seems. Night falls a lot earlier than it used to and so the sky has these vivid sunset colors that we haven't seen before until wintertime comes. And the air smells different. It smells a lot different. It smells cleaner somehow. And there's the smell of a distant fire burning. And so everybody huddles inside the way we have been doing ever since the invention of the wheel. And we get together real close and we try to warm ourselves up by two different things. Either beer or staying real close together with other bodies. And when you're together like that and you're, you're spending time together, it is only natural for the human animal to tell stories. And this is why Christmas offers us the best stories, the best stories known to mankind happen at Christmas. And this, I believe, is why we love Christmas the most. Not because of greed. You get older and you can buy yourself anything you want. Christmas is less about what's underneath the tree and more about what's in the hearts of the people you love. This, I believe, is why we love Christmas. In 1989, Eastern North Carolina was completely whited out with what could be called a blizzard. It was whipping all over Eastern North Carolina, freezing this place to death like the inside of a snow globe which is pretty remarkable when you consider that this area once during prehistory was completely submerged in the Atlantic Ocean because it was a tropical zone. 
right where we are sitting, this entire area was being patrolled by megalodon sharks that were roughly the size of a three-bedroom ranch house. This is amazing to me. These things, I've seen illustrations of these sharks, these things are big enough with jaws wide enough to swallow Land Rovers and Range Rovers. Enormous, enormous creatures. But in 1989, December 23rd, Eastern North Carolina had become a walk-in freezer. Cars were stringing on the interstates all the way back to the horizon. A long chain of red neon taillights stringing together, unbroken for hundreds and hundreds of miles on the interstate. And there in the middle of this traffic jam, there in the middle was a 1970s model Ford Ranger, two-tone brown. Dark brown on the bottom, light brown on the top. The windows were slightly fogged because the heater was blasting inside. The contents of the bed of the truck were covered in a canvas tarp. Inside this truck was a young woman. She was brunette. She had dark brown eyes. The iris seemed to swallow up the entire eyeball. Slender lovely. Her hands were resting on that steering wheel and her belly was way out to here. She was pregnant with a capital P. She was leaving her boyfriend on her way to see her mother in Washington County. She had just left Wake County earlier that morning. She had left Washington County several years ago when she was 19 years old with her boyfriend, who was her high school sweetheart. He promised to love her and cherish her and do all the things that young men often promise. But his promises were cheap and they fell through. She had been with him for many years, it seemed. Time seems to move slower when you're younger. She was 23 now. She had given him four of the best years of her life. She had nothing to show for it except an extended belly. He decided that there was a young woman at a truck stop who he liked better. She was younger than his young high school sweetheart. She was 19, he was 24. He took up with her. The young woman's heart was broken. When she confronted him about it, he he told her he wasn't in love with her anymore. She said, but I'm carrying your child. He said, I can't help that. What do you want from me? She said, I want you. I want you and me to do what we promised we'd do together. I want us to have a life together. He didn't want any of those things. And so, in a heated fury, she stomped upstairs to her room. She gathered her things into her suitcase. She filled the back of that truck with the possessions that were hers. There weren't many of them. She covered it with a canvas tarp from the shed. She fired up the engine. He said, you can't take my truck. She said, watch me. He said, you can't take my child. He said, where are you going? She said, somewhere far, far away from here. She got onto the highways and she cried and she drove through blurry eyes. That heater was blasting, but it wasn't warm enough. It wasn't warm enough. By the time she got to the interstate, the weather had, had really degenerated into whatever this was. It looked like a blizzard. She cranked on the radio, and the radio said that it was the worst weather ever seen in North Carolina ever since the 1920s. And traffic was not moving. And so it was because the universe has an incredible sense of humor. This woman began to feel something happening in her nether regions. She placed her left hand under her belly and she winced in pain. The agony was overtaking her. She knew exactly what was happening. She'd been to the birthing classes at the local hospital. 
she was having contractions. And the contractions were getting closer together until it felt like her entire body was one giant contraction, one big muscle that was flexing to rock solid status. Her stomach was so tight, if you had afflicted, it would have rang out a middle C. She gripped her belly and moaned in agony. And then she heard something. It was the sound of a splashing on the floorboards. Amniotic fluid was filling the vehicle. At first she thought she had peed herself, but then she realized that this was something far more serious. She clicked on her right blinker. She turned that wheel over to the shoulder. She clicked on her hazards. She blared the heater. She undid her seat belt and she crawled onto the bench seat and wedged her backside against the passenger side door. And she wedged her two feet in the stirrup-like position and she felt herself pushing in that truck. Meantime, behind her, there was a, a Peterbilt semi, about 450 horses rumbling behind her. Such a strong engine that it seemed like the entire pavement was shaken. Little bits of gravel were vibrating across the highway from, from this rattling engine. He saw the truck pull over onto the highway's shoulder, and he felt something in his gut say that something was wrong. He'd never forgotten that his father had said this to him, to follow your gut. It was an aphorism that his father had always used. And it was first told to him during some standardized testing that this, this truck driver was taking when he was a young man of only 16 years old. The father said, the first answer you find on a test that you think is the right one is probably the right one. Go with your gut. And he'd always trusted that wisdom. It seemed like such good advice. Go with your gut. His gut was telling him to check on the passenger of the Ford Ranger. And so he pulled his red Peterbilt truck to the side of the interstate shoulder. He flipped on his hazards. Cars behind him were honking because a semi-truck cannot pull entirely onto the shoulder. And so he was sticking out into the highway a little bit, causing an obstacle for other people in traffic who were desperately trying to get home. He kicked open his door, he jumped out, he crunched through the snow and the wind was whipping on his face and burning his cheeks and he drew his jacket tight and he cranked down his seed cap over his head. It was biting cold, biting cold. The man on the radio said that some places in eastern North Carolina were getting 18 to 20 inches, 18 to 20 inches. He got to the Ford Ranger rapped on the window. Hello? Is anybody in there? Are you okay? Pop, 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 pop. Hello? Are you all right? And he could hear moaning coming from behind the glass. Go with your gut. Go with your gut. He placed his gloved hand on that door. And he opened the handle. The door clicked open and he saw a young woman who was pressed against the passenger side door. She was gripping the chicken handle above her and she was moaning in agony. She said, I'm having a blanking baby. <laughs> he looked at her and he had to admit that yes, she was having a blanking baby. <laughs> he crawled into the truck and he shut the door behind him. And he said what any man would say in this situation. Relax, I've got it under complete control. <laughs> the young man had been taking courses at a local junior college, paramedic courses, introductory to emergency medical technician training. He had only been going for a few semesters after he decided that being a truck driver was not his main calling in life. There were long hours, and even though the trucking companies asked you to report your hours, you were expected to lie on the truck logs. He found himself always lacking sleep. He found himself having a hard time 
waking up. He, had, he found himself being a dangerous driver behind that Peterbilt semi. He wanted out of the profession. He wanted to help people. He thought maybe he'd be a teacher or perhaps he would even go into the ministry. He was a Methodist man. But none of these felt right for him. And then one of his friends suggested he go check out the junior college's introductory to emergency medical technician training. And he did, and he loved it. He loved the idea of helping people in their most ardent time of need. Although, to be honest, he had absolutely no idea what he was doing when it came to obstetrician work. He had read a few paragraphs about what to do in the event of an emergency delivery in his textbook, and he had technically watched a video in class that depicted childbirth, but through most of the class he covered his face <laughs> because it was awful, an awful sight to see. He looked through his fingers some, but not much because it was like looking at a hawk killing. They disrobed her lower half in that truck. She gripped the handle as hard as she could. He said, we're gonna do this. We can make this happen. You're gonna be okay. I need you to trust me. She said, okay, I, can, I trust you. And he said the first word that came to his mind. He said, push. Seemed like a good idea since she was already pushing anyway. <laughs> in the middle of this delivery, there was another pop, pop, pop rap at the window. The young man turned around, he wondered who it was. He heard the voice from behind the glass. Is everybody okay in there? Is everybody okay? The door opened and behind him was an older man with silver hair, and silver stubble on his face. He said, what's going on in here? The man said, she's having a blanking baby. The young woman looked up and she craned her neck to see who was looking at her and she said, I'm having a blanking baby, so shut the door. <laughs> the older man said, it's okay, I'm a retired police officer. The young man looked at the older man, he said, do you know what you're doing about having a baby? The man climbed into the truck, he shut the door, the heater was blaring, the windows were fogged, the windshield was nothing but pure white. The truth was, the retired officer really hadn't ever delivered a baby before, per se. In fact, he'd never even seen it done, nor had he read about it, nor had he even heard of it happening in his district. But because he is a male, and males like to exude false confidence, he said, back off, I've got this. And so it was, there were three people in the truck cab of an extended Ford Ranger who were huddled around this young woman, these two men. And as they were working, and as she was pushing, behind them came the sound, pop, 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 pop. Hello, is everybody okay in there? It was the sound of a woman's voice. The door opened, and standing there on the other side of the door, was a 15-year-old boy and his mother. The 15-year-old boy was a Boy Scout, second class. His mother announced that he had knowledge of childbirth because he had learned about it in Scouts during first aid. The young truck driver and the old man, retired former police officer, looked at the young Boy Scout and they said, uh, we've got it from here, thank you. Thank you, young man. The young man looked at the woman in her, in her delivery, and he said, you've got her in the wrong position. She's dilated. Her pelvis needs to be lower than her knees. If not, the baby won't come through the birth canal. There won't be enough room. <laughs> the young truck driver and the old police officer looked at each other, exchanged a glance. Then they looked at the young boy scout and said, why don't you come on in, son? <laughs> and there it was, on the side of an American interstate, that a 15-year-old Boy Scout, second class, who had taken a first aid delivery class, 
was eye level with the birthing canal. And he said, I can see the head. The woman pushed, she pushed, she grit her teeth. Her skin on her forehead became translucent and you could see that squiggly vein emerge. She gripped the hand of the young truck driver. She gripped the hand of the former police officer. And the young 15-year-old said, push, push, I see the head. The head emerged from the birth canal, then the shoulders, and then the torso. And the young truck driver caught the child into his arms. The baby was covered in postpartum goo and smelled so different than anything he'd ever smelled before. It was like fresh flowers. He didn't know it was possible that a child, a newborn child, after having undergone something so visceral and raw, could smell so wonderful. And it was at that exact moment that that 15-year-old Boy Scout said, I see another head. And so, 1989, December 23rd in Eastern North Carolina, on the humble interstate, a young 23-year-old brunette woman gave birth to two perfect twin girls. That young woman has been married for 31 years to an EMT who used to be a truck driver. And their two daughters are grown now with families of their own. But that former truck driver and that young former brunette whose hair is no longer brunette but has a head of silver now, and that former young man who is no longer young, still own that Ford Ranger. Christmas is a time of stories. It's the best time of year for stories. And if you ask me, I think that's why we're put here, to live beautiful lives and then to tell about it. It came upon a midnightly That glorious song of old From angels bending near the earth To touch their harps of gold Peace on the earth, goodwill Two men from heaven's gracious king. The world in solemn stillness lay to hear the angels sing. Still through our show for you tonight that's our show how about this special guest of ours Becky Bueller everybody <laughs> this episode made possible by case knife tradition in my family and by folklore brewing the best beer coming to you out of Dothan Alabama special thanks to Kim Scott's John Rainey Sylvia Centimore Aaron Peters Alan Wright and Federico Hacchini to find anything more about what we do visit Sean of the South show.com you can find it all Merry Christmas everybody to men from heaven's gracious The world in solemn stillness to hear the angels sing. Merry Christmas, everybody.